and if you've got a Bible, please may I invite you, whether it's a paper Bible or a device, to have it open back at the passage Reuben read to us in Mark chapter 11. And before we begin, I'm just going to pray again. Father God, we ask now that you would help us to concentrate and to listen, not to me, as it were, but to you. And help us, Lord God, we pray, to respond with obedience and faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. I don't believe in organised religion at all. It's what separates people. That's the view of Hollywood actress and general guru Gwyneth Paltrow. That's the kind of moderate and anti-religion view. Or you could take the more extreme view from Christopher Hitchens, for example, in this book, God is not great. He writes this, and he's pretty blunt. He says here, God is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children. Organised religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. Maybe you hear those comments or you know people who would hear those comments and they would think, yeah, I agree. Religion is awful. It's dreadful. We hear of another religious figure, for instance, guilty of abuse and it makes us angry. Or you hear of another institutional cover-up and it makes us sick. You hear of another killing in the name of religion and it makes us despair. Or maybe you hear those comments and you would think, yeah, yeah, okay, some parts of religion are very, very bad. They're awful. But it's not all bad, is it? I mean, sometimes really good things can happen with religion. You know, people, they are inspired to make a difference or to create great art or beautiful buildings and stuff like that. I mean, can't we keep the good parts without throwing out the whole thing? Or maybe for you, this is actually quite painful to think about, to think about religion. Perhaps in the past you feel you've been hurt by religious groups or you've been left feeling that you don't really belong because of things that have happened to you in your past or because of things in your background. Well, however we feel about religion as we see it in the world around us today, In last week's passage, if you were here, Jesus, God's anointed king, he arrives in Jerusalem, which in his day, as in our day, was probably the most religious place on earth. And this morning, we are going to see what Jesus says to religion. But our passage starts, as you will see on your sheets, this outline, not with religion, but with a tree. As Jesus, point one, says, it is over for a fruitless fig tree is over 
for a fruitless fig tree. Look down at verse 12 of Mark chapter 11. Verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Okay, so here's the scene, you know, Jesus, he is hungry, quite natural. He sees a fig tree, those lovely little things that they find in their part of the world. And verse 13, when he comes to it, he found nothing but leaves. So he says, verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus says it's over for a fruitless fig tree. And that by itself might feel a little bit harsh. But then look at what Mark adds at the end of verse 13. Mark says at the end of verse 13, it was not the season for figs. I mean, poor fig tree. Poor fig tree. It wasn't even the season for figs. But when Jesus doesn't find any figs, he curses it. He's either just totally lost the plot because he's so hungry... Or he's just simply ignorant of basic things like when fruit grows. But the thing is, the thing is, Mark deliberately includes this fig tree episode. And so he cannot be embarrassed about it. And he deliberately points out that it wasn't the season for figs. And so he cannot just think that Jesus looked silly in what's going on here. Well, the answer is... In a little detail, Mark includes twice in verse 13. I wonder if you spotted it. Can you see the little detail that we see in verse 13? Let's look at it again. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. So this tree, it didn't have any fruit, but it did have leaves. Now, as far as I know, we do not have fig trees in this country around, around us the same way that Jesus did in Israel in the Old Testament, in um, first century Judaism. So we may not know what Mark's first readers would have realized already that in with fig trees, the leaves come after it gets its fruit. And so if there were leaves on a fig tree, you would expect to find fruit or fruit should have been there. And the leaves are actually the reason why Jesus makes a look at the the fig tree in the first place. Look carefully at verse 13. It doesn't say, seeing a fig tree in leaf, he went to get fruit. Instead, Mark says, he went to see if he could find any fruit. Jesus knows it's not the season for figs, but this tree has leaves. So it looks from a distance like it should have fruit. But despite looking good from a distance, it's fruitless. Okay, but still we might think, why does Jesus curse it? And this time the answer doesn't come by zooming in on the detail, but actually by zooming out to the whole passage. Because this passage is arranged a bit like a sandwich. If you read Mark's Gospel, if you've read it before, you will know that a sandwich structure is often what Mark uses to organise his material. So if you look carefully, in verses 12 to 14, we get the fig tree. Then, in verses 15 to 19, it's all, it all kicks off at the temple in the middle. And then, if you look down at verse 20, we're back to the fig tree. It comes up again, doesn't it? Hence, the sandwich. 
And so Mark has put this together deliberately like this, because Jesus is using the fig tree as a picture of the temple. Let me say that again. Jesus is using the fig tree here as a picture of the temple. That's why Mark sandwiches them together like this. And actually, the connection starts earlier, back in verse 11, which, as we said last week, it's a bit of an odd verse, isn't it? It's a bit weird. Verse 11, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he looks around, and then he just goes home. It's a bit odd, isn't it, on its own? But as we continue, we see that Mark is making this connection in verse 11 between the fig tree, which he's just about to come to, and then the temple. And so, like verse 11, just as Jesus inspects the temple in verse 11, so verse 13, he inspects the fig tree. And actually, if we knew our Old Testaments better, like Mark's first readers would have done, then we would know and make the connection even stronger, because often in the Old Testament, God repeatedly uses the fig tree as a picture of his people, Israel. So Jesus, he is using this fig tree episode to show what the temple at the heart of the nation of Israel was like. Because like this tree, the temple, it looked good from a distance. It looked splendid. But when Jesus inspects it up close, he finds nothing. And so as well as saying point one, it is over for a fruitless fig tree, Jesus also says point two, it is over For a fruitless temple. It is over. For a fruitless temple. The temple in Jerusalem would have been surrounded by these huge courtyards, which would have had, it would have been full of people. And so look down at verse 15. Jesus enters and it all kicks off. He goes on rampage. So just imagine the shouts and the protests as verse 15, he drives the people out and he's forcing people to leave these huge courtyards. And then verse 15, imagine the the crash and the panic and the hurls, the tables of coins into the ground. I mean, it's a shame that we're not having communion this morning. I would have loved to reenact this scene, but I probably would have got into trouble. But never mind. He is, can you just see the action that is going on? It's very dramatic. He's going in. He's throwing over the benches of all the animals and all the tradespeople. And he's driving them all out, not letting them trade anymore. It's all rampage. It's chaos. Just imagine all the noise, all the chaos. Imagine if you were there and you were filming this on your phone or you were a journalist. Imagine what you would see and what you would report. It's crazy. Just imagine the smash and the squawking. As Jesus throws these benches of people selling live animals to the ground. Not just glasses breaking and shattering, but all kinds of squawking. (laughs) If the Jesus that we imagine, or that our friends or family imagine, you know, if he is so polite that he wouldn't say boo to a goose. If we think that we, he's always, you know, soft and mild-mannered, that we would need to change our minds, won't we? Jesus, you know, he doesn't kind of come and then just ask quietly, excuse me, you're just making a bit of a noise, can you just move along, please, just out of the way, thank you very much. He doesn't do that at all, does he? No, as we saw last week, Jesus knows that he is the king and that he takes matters into his own hands, doesn't he? And that he starts this one-man riot, as it were, because, as we saw last week, 
he is the king and he assumes that he is in charge. But Jesus' problem here, it's not so much that there is buying and selling in the temple, he's not some kind of Marxist. Because actually the buying and the selling here is absolutely necessary because pilgrims, they would have come from all over the place, across the world, to offer animal sacrifices at the temple and to give money in exchange, which God had commanded them to do. And so they had to buy animals rather than carrying their own sheep, as it were, all the way from wherever they come from, and therefore exchange currency. And so buying and selling itself isn't necessarily the problem. What's wrong here is probably where the buying and the selling is happening. And so the temple, it's like a series of huge courtyards, like I said earlier, and the first part Jesus would have walked into was called the Court of the Nations. It was a place that God had set up for anyone from any background and any nation to pray and to talk to and ask him for forgiveness of sins and to meet God. But this trade is happening not outside where it should have done, but in the court of the nations. And it's stopping people using it for prayer. And so you can see this is happening. You know, if you look at verse 17 and what Jesus says, verse 17, Jesus says, as he, was, as he taught them, he said, is it not written that my house, that is God's talking about the temple, my house, it should be a house of prayer for all the nations. And there, Jesus, he is quoting from Isaiah 56, which we won't turn to, because basically we've been told the bit that we need to know from this quote. God, he wanted this temple to be a place that anyone from anywhere, any nation, could come and know him personally. So God, he is not racist. God is not just interested in one people group or people from one country. God includes people from every background. And the point of God giving Israel his laws and this temple was not to exclude other people, but God's desire was that as Israel lived in his beautiful way, then they would act like a light shining out to the world, showing people how incredible God is so that all nations could come and know him. That's why he said, verse 17, he wanted his house to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But by Jesus' day, the place that God had set aside for the nations had been turned by the Jews into a marketplace to line their pockets and to preserve their privilege. And, you know, we could easily just point the finger, couldn't we? we just point the finger at them and judge... But they're not really that, they're not really any different from anyone else, are they? They're just doing what human religion always does, wherever it finds itself. Setting up systems that look after your own and exclude the outsider. Claiming that the family that you're born into, or your social status, or your moral performance gives you some kind of advantage before God. And Jesus hates it. He hates Religion. When people use religion to look out for themselves and to look down on others, it makes him so angry that he overturns tables and throws people out. But that's not the only way that human religion makes Jesus angry. Because, verse 17, if you look at what Jesus says next, 
Verse 17, Jesus says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that last little bit is an Old Testament quote that we are going to look up, and it's from Jeremiah chapter 7. The page numbers are on your sheets. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's turn to Jeremiah so we can just see what Jesus means when he quotes this Old Testament prophet in Mark 11. Jeremiah chapter 7. God says to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 verse 2, Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, this temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in the place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. But now, look at verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 7. Look at verse 8. You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which means my, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So can you see what's happening back in Jeremiah's day? They were basically just doing whatever they wanted to do. Murder, theft, oppression. But they thought that because they had God's temple and because they were part of their particular race, they thought they could just basically get away with it. And that God would somehow just let them off. And they could just run to the temple like a robber running to his hidden hideout and just get away with it. So that's what was going on in Jeremiah. And now turn back to Mark chapter 11, and have a look again at verse 17. With that background from Jeremiah, look at Mark 11 again, verse 17, where Jesus quotes these words from Jeremiah, saying that what was true of Jeremiah's day is true of this day also as well. Jesus says, verse 17, you have made it, just like God said for Jeremiah, a den of robbers. And the crazy thing here, I wonder if you spotted this, the crazy thing here is that what the religious leaders do next in verse 18 just proves that he's exactly right. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they heard and they began plotting their way to kill him. Do you see what's going on? The prophet Jeremiah condemned Israel for shedding innocent blood. And here in Mark, the teachers of the law, whose job it was to teach people not to murder, are themselves 
in the temple plotting to murder. This is the hypocrisy of human religion that Jesus absolutely hates and detests. But again, it's not surprising, is it? Because those who are on top of the religious pile, as it were, who mostly benefit from excluding others, they have most to lose when Jesus brings it down. And nothing has changed, has it? Across history, when the authentic message of Jesus has, that he himself taught has spread, the strongest opposition has often come from other established religions. And even people within the church who have positions of authority. Israel and their leaders in Jesus' day, they were just like those in Jeremiah's day, living basically how they wanted, then thinking that because they were part of this nation, or that they had this special place, this temple, that they'll get away with it. And may I suggest this, isn't this just like the religious hypocrisy around us today? Religious leaders who abuse children and think their high position means they'll get away with it. Nations who harm other nations and claim that God is on their side and therefore it's okay. Religious groups who think that their background means that they can look down on others. Men who take advantage of women and say it's okay because it's permitted by religion. But God has a terrible warning for people like this. Just listen to what Jeremiah then says later. Don't turn to it. Just listen to what Jeremiah says next in chapter 7. Just listen to what he says next. Go now to the place of Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, this other place, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did or your fellow Israelites. So again, in Jeremiah, God warns them by pointing them back to what he's done before. Shiloh was the place where God first lived among them. But because of their wickedness and hypocrisy, he left and it was destroyed. And in Jeremiah's day, where people are doing the same thing, God says the same will happen. He will not put up with this. And it did. You know your Old Testament, you'll remember that the temple, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so now, in Mark, the temple is being rebuilt again. Do you see the terrible symbolism of Jesus stopping the money changers and the animal sellers? Just as Jeremiah said, the previous temple would be destroyed, so as Jesus drives out the animals, he's saying, no more sacrifices, no more empty religion, no more oppression of the outsider, no more hypocrisy, no corruption, no elitism. I am bringing it all to an end. Jesus says it's over for a fruitless temple. Isn't the Jesus 
of history, the real Jesus, so much better than whatever made-up impression of Jesus we come with or with what our friends have in their minds. Isn't it brilliant that Jesus hates man-made religion that puffs up one group at the expense of others? Isn't it brilliant that Jesus is so passionate about nothing getting in the way of people from all nations knowing God themselves? The real Jesus is not a kind of soppy figure in a ninety cuddling lambs. He gets angry at hypocrisy. He won't stand it when evil prospers. He steps in and he will bring justice. I mean, doesn't that make him a man worth loving, a man worth being proud of, a man worth listening to and following? But the thing is, the thing is, Jesus isn't just passionately against all this. You know, like some kind of ineffective protester that we see on the news or on social media, you know, chanting slogans, but probably changing very little. No, Jesus is not like that. Because point three on your sheets, what Jesus says always happens. Have a look down at verse 20 of Mark 11 with me. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Point three, what Jesus says always happens. And verse 20, this fig tree isn't just kind of wilted for a moment, like the grass outside in the summer. Verse 20, it's wilted to its roots. It's utterly destroyed. And the fig tree, remember, it's the picture of the temple. Both looked good from the, from the outside, from a distance, but produced no fruit. The temple, like all human religion, has loads of activity. It's very busy, but really, it's hollow. It was over for the fig tree, and it's over for the temple. And it was. In chapter 13, we're gonna, when we get to that in a few weeks' time, we'll see that explained even more. In chapter 13, Jesus, you know, he prophesizes the, the destruction of this temple. And sure enough, within a generation, Jerusalem and its temple had been destroyed by the Romans. Jesus hates religion. He hates religious hypocrisy and elitism way more than we do. And he'll bring it all to an end. And when we look at the evil around us that is done in the name of religion, that should comfort us and make us want to stand with Jesus. He sees it all and he promises to bring all that to its knees. But may I also suggest it should also unsettle us. Because the reality is that pride and looking down on others because they're different and thinking that we're something because we look good on the outside and thinking that we'll get away with things that we hide. You know, they're they're not just problems for organised religion, are they? They're problems for all of us. You might think of yourself here as religious or perhaps not at all. But however people think of themselves, we all try to justify our own behaviour, don't we? Even the person who you know 
at work or in your family who really wouldn't want to be associated with anything religious remotely, we, you know, they still look down on others, don't they? We all still think there are things in our background, don't we? Or in our past, or that count for us, or count us out. We all, as it were, we kind of set up little religions in ourselves, for ourselves. And just think, if God would judge the people of Israel, whom he gave commands to, and he gave them this temple, he will not hold back exposing and judging the hypocrisy and self-serving attitude in our own hearts. God is not fooled, by the way, by appearances. Did you know that? He is not fooled by appearances. He wasn't then, and he isn't today. And that is why we desperately need the end of this passage. Because the incredible news for anyone, whether they call themselves religious or not, is point four on our sheets. Jesus offers a better alternative. Forgiveness for anyone, anywhere. Look at verse 22 with me. At first, they just, these verses, these final verses, they just look either a bit random or crazy, don't they? Because we jump from temples and fig trees to faith and mountains. And we're like, whoa, calm down, mate. Jesus, what are you doing? What are you talking about? This looks a bit stir-fry crazy. Verse 24, if you believe enough, you can have whatever you want, whether that's a Porsche or a pony. But as always, as always, my friends, the context makes sense of them. Because verse 22 is Jesus' response to to Peter's cry in verse 21. So when Peter cries, verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. I don't think Peter is just sad because a tree has died. I think he might just be starting to get what it means for the temple. Because if point two, Jesus says it's over for a fruitless temple, and point three, what Jesus says always happens, then behind Peter's cry are all kinds of questions. Because this means that the temple too is on its way out. At first in verse 23, if you look down, Jesus says, yeah, that is really what I'm saying. Because he says, verse 23, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. To be clear, I don't think this is a promise that next time you're on holiday in the Swiss Alps or the Lake District or wherever, you can say to any mountain, move, and it will go. No, Jesus is referring to a particular mountain. If you look back carefully at verse 23, what does it say? It says, this mountain. Not any mountain, but this mountain. And that's important because he's referring to the mountain that the temple was built on. Which, as they're talking, would have been stood just in front of them. And Jesus hasn't literally said, you know, jump into the sea. But remember, he has just announced the temple's destruction. He says, verse 23, yeah, this really will happen. This temple and its hypocritical religion, it will all come crashing down. As he unpacks a lot more in chapter 13. We'll get there in a few weeks' time. Okay, but that raises a really, really big question, especially if you know your Bibles. And if you're one of the 
apostles with Jesus at the time, it raises a big question because they'll be thinking, hang on, if the temple is going to go, how then do we relate to God? What about prayer? What about forgiveness? That is what the temple was being there for. What will happen if it's gone? What about this promise of Isaiah 56, that God wants people from all nations to know him? Well, point four, Jesus offers a better alternative, free forgiveness for anyone, anywhere. Look at verse 24 again. Jesus says, verse 24, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Again, this isn't a kind of name it and claim it verse. Anything you want, you can have it, etc., etc. The context, again, as we've seen, is the temple, the place for forgiveness and prayer that is about to be destroyed. And so what's at stake is forgiveness for sins and relationship with God, not material desires. But Jesus is saying, he is saying here, look, you do not need the temple anymore to relate to God. You don't need to go to special places at special times and perform special sacrifices and actions to earn forgiveness and to feel free and secure about yourself. You don't need that anymore. Jesus is offering you something better. He is offering you forgiveness of sins once and for all, simply through asking God and trusting him to deliver. We can have a guilt-free conscience. And so stop comparing yourself with other people. I'm really bad at this, I must admit it, but I think all of us have a problem with comparing ourselves, don't we? We need to stop feeling that we're something because we found someone to look down on, or we need to stop feeling that we're nothing because we don't feel that we fit in. Jesus says, we simply ask God and we are forgiven once and for all. We are fully accepted. No matter what we have done, no matter where we have come from. And Jesus told us in Mark how this is possible. If you remember chapter 10 verse 45, where Jesus explains how this free forgiveness is possible. Mark says, 10 verse 45, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, gave his life and he died in our place as a ransom. So it's all been done. So point four, free forgiveness is possible anywhere to anyone. And verse 25, it adds that the forgiveness Jesus gives isn't hypocritical like human religion. Because he's saying that faith in God that knows free forgiveness, what does it do? It freely forgives other people too. Because just think, total dependence on God It removes any sense of superiority or pride. The American author Tim Keller, he writes this. I found this pretty helpful. Religion poses a danger of creating division or intolerance between groups. But the gospel of Jesus leads to three things. Humble service, reconciling behaviour that is neither patronising nor self-righteous, and a love towards people who hold different beliefs. Isn't that true? Jesus hates man-made religion. 
He hates anything that stops people knowing this free forgiveness that he offers. That is good news when we see hypocrisy and self-serving religion all around us, of course. But I've got to say, it is also bad news when we see it in our own hearts as well. But I've got to say, Jesus, he offers, as we've seen, a better solution. Not just, a, not just a different solution, but a better solution. Free forgiveness for anyone, anywhere. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received this forgiveness that Jesus offers for yourself. Maybe you've been, to, you've been going to church for many, many years and you've always thought it's all about doing things to be forgiven and to be accepted. Well, what we've seen today, Jesus says, no, it's free for anyone, anywhere. Which means it could be for you as well, even today, even here this morning, as Jesus says, simply ask God and it will be given to us. Isn't that so much better than what we see around us? Jesus, he absolutely hates religion. Religion that does things in the name of God to to serve themselves. But Jesus didn't come to serve himself, did he? He did. Mark 10, verse 45, he came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give him his life as a ransom for many. Jesus offers a better alternative, free forgiveness for anyone, anywhere. Isn't Jesus, uh, isn't Jesus the king worth following and worth loving? Why don't I pray and we will sing.